Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, I want to know what animal makes a movie radically better. And I want to clarify what movie animal's performance is in so integral to the film that it does not work without its contribution. Okay, so this one was actually pretty easy for me because it is a movie I have watched recently. Most likely we're going to get into it in the episode at large. Um, it is Asta the Dog from The Thin Man because The Thin Man, great movie. Love Nick and Nora Charles. They are hashtag relationship goals. But it is a movie where quite literally the mystery does not matter one bit. It's about those two. But I think truly it's what Asta brings to the movie because Asta gets his own little arc and he's his own little character. And just throughout the whole movie, Asta is depressed because his girlfriend is pregnant with the next door neighbor's dogs babies and the and asta is just really depressed that he's been cucked by the neighbor dog and it's just it's so goddamn funny and nick keeps talking like oh the dog's like really tough and he'll back me up and the dog's just a little coward and he's just so it's just that dog is so goddamn funny in in all the thin man movies asta's great but in the first one where he's just the dog gets cucked by another dog and it's not even like Oh, maybe he's like, oh, they're kind of joking. Like, no, there's scenes where the dog is just sadly looking at his girlfriend through a fence, sees the other dog crawl under another fence to come get some of his girlfriend's action, and he runs it off and starts digging over the hole so the dog can't come back. And the dog is just so sad that his girlfriend is having another dog's babies. It's so, it's so funny i can't even get through i'm a fucking writer and i cannot explain properly how fucking funny it is to watch a dog be just riddled with guilt and sadness that it has been cucked by another dog it is so goddamn funny asta the dog is the king so for me it's a very different direction I'll I'll say this. I remember when I was in college, um, heading into I think it was our senior year. One professor we had had a movie they showed every year, and it had a reputation among some of the film students. I remember a guy who was a year ahead of us just kept talking about, quote, this fucking donkey movie, oh, okay. and it sounded it, it it was one of these things that like it was the thing that somebody you know when people make up fake pretentious art films, and they talk about uh, you know. Oh, it's just about a, an Icelandic man staring at the water for an hour. This sounded like that. It was. I just kept getting told, it's this movie about this fucking donkey. It's just watching a donkey walk around. It's a movie about a fucking donkey. And I think I went into this class, you know, ready to just 
uh, when I finally got there and, oh, we're watching the donkey movie, ready to kind of really slag this thing off. And uh, the movie played, and an hour and 35 minutes later, uh, I was at my desk sobbing, literally crying in a class full of people. And I remember the professor came out and saw me and just went, no, I understand it happens. Um, the film is Ohazard Balthazar um, by Robert Bersoms from 1966. It is um, an, an emotionally overwhelming film. I think in our older version of the podcast, uh, our friend Sierra Webb came on. I made her watch it. And she, again, went into it like, I, I don't do art films. I'm not going to notice it. And she was moved by it. You're basically following this donkey around for the, you know, Balthazar the donkey for the bulk of the film. Uh, and his story parallels with a young woman uh Anna Wazemski it's just about the experiences this donkey has with kind owners with cruel owners just experiencing all of the brutality and and cruelness that this world has and it is truly heart-wrenching to watch any of that cruelty delivered to an innocent you know and this donkey by the end of it, you just, you know, it, it has your heart. It, it's an absolutely moving experience. It's now one of my favorite films. I don't watch it often because it's a, it's a, it's so emotional to do it. But when when this question came up, like all I could think of was was Balthazar the donkey, an incredible moment, an incredible film. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're looking at what is now considered an essential film from Katherine Hepburn. Ryan Luis Rodriguez is here for 1938's Bringing a Baby. Our guest today is the host of The Coolness Chronicles and one of the hosts of Reels of Justice. Ryan Luis Rodriguez joins us to talk about Bringing Up Baby. Ryan, thank you so much for joining Welcome. us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's so cool to actually get to talk about older movies, which we don't get to do on either of the other podcasts that I do. So this is nice. Which uh, a lot of podcasts don't seem to do, so... Uh... <laughs> Well, you I'm guys, we got to, listen, we got in fairness, guys. as we're as we're recording this, you guys just released an episode on Glenn or Glenda, so you're doing some black and white stuff there, you know. That is true. Well, I mean, the thing about older movies is that they don't typically tend to be that controversial. So I think that where Reels of Justice, the gray area in which we operate, yeah, we tend to focus on the movies that people either say, that's my favorite thing ever, or that's the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. And it's well, really hard uh, to do that about Casablanca. You can't really well, go there. Well, uh, come back in a year or two where we have to cover <laughs> The Birth of a Nation. Yeah, we've got some controversial ones in the chamber over here on the National Film Registry, too. Don't you worry. Uh, they're just <laughs> yeah. not ones that anybody will go on the record defending. You're not going to get I mean, not, one. Not, well, not the kind of people we'd want yes, on the show. Exactly. I you're, mean, not, you're not going to be able to find anybody to come into your fake courtroom and, and, and really uh, stand up for old D.W. Griffiths. Um, that said, you know, if you, I, I, I think, I think you should branch out. I think you should broaden it. I think, um, you guys, you know, you should put, uh, Mary Pickford on trial once in a while. Really, 
really drive up those <laughs> those listener numbers with yeah and you know, we'll, we'll do a head-to-head against douglas fairbanks <laughs> let's do let's hey you know what let's let's bring things back completely for full circle since we're re- recircling the 1919 pandemic and world war ii let's put fatty arbuckle on trial absolutely absolutely <laughs> no like I'm, i i think that's i tell you what ryan if i come back on reels of justice i want it to be about um edward moybridge's cat does a gallop which turns into a trot you know the five second clip of the cat walking slower and then faster that's what Guilty. i'm there to, to do ah oh, damn oh already lost oh, sorry we're already yeah. out force a habit Angry force report. a habit i didn't even i did not even do a kenneth Brown impression this time i didn't get a chance <laughs> damn it um but thank you so much for coming on and thank you so much for picking bringing up baby uh i'm very excited to talk about this one um have you, have you seen it before, or is this your first yes. time? Yes, this okay. is my third time. Okay. And I picked right. up the, the Criterion Blu-ray. I think it came out uh, April of last year. Yeah. And so I've watched it twice since that. Mm. Once for this, and then once out of just general enjoyment. But yeah, I love this movie. And Tom, had you seen it before? Uh, yeah, like, uh, it seems it's been a running joke. Uh, I watched it last year when the Criterion came out, preparing for this season. Uh, I'm also... I feel like I've seen this in college. This might have been something like Cochelle showed us, but the memory is a bit foggy. But uh, it's definitely a multiple viewer for me. And then I, you know, I watched it yesterday to refresh my memory and uh, just get get into the zone. The auto zone. <laughs> get in the zone. Hey, auto zone, baby. So we'll we'll talk about you know how I came to this film. We'll talk about why Ryan picked it. But first, let's talk about why the registry selected bringing up baby. Here's what the registry had to say. In this fast-paced screwball comedy from director Howard Hawks, Susan Vance, Catherine Hepburn, an eccentric heiress with a pet leopard named Baby, proves a constant irritant to paleontologist David Huxley, Cary Grant, who is trying to raise $1 million to complete his dinosaur skeleton reconstruction project. Based on a short story by Hagar Wilde, Hawks worked closely with Wilde and screenwriter Dudley Nichols to perfect the script, in which the role of Susan Vance was written specifically with Hepburn in mind. Although now considered a cinematic classic, Bringing Up Baby received mixed critical reviews upon release and performed well only in certain areas of the United States, thus reaffirming the film industry's then-current view of Hepburn as, quote, box office poison. Significantly, Bringing Up Baby is possibly the first American film to use the term gay as a reference to homosexuality. So that's what the National Film Registry had to say. So, Ryan, when we sent you over the list, what was it about Bringing Up Baby that stood out to you? Well, it was one that uh, I had been planning on. I, I was going to do a season on the Coolness Chronicles about 1938 and 1939, which are kind of generally regarded as like the greatest years of you oh. know classic Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, you know, up until 1999 and then 2007. But everybody's done 1999 and 2007 already. Like there's literally a podcast. I've been on it. They did all the movies of 20, 2007. It's a great well, show. But... That's that's so funny. We've been on a podcast that did all the movies in 1999. Nice. Yeah. Oh, was it uh, a podcast like it's 1999? Yep. Yep. Awesome show. Our, awesome our good. Show. Yeah. Oh yeah. Phil and Kenny have been on our show a couple times. We've been on theirs. They're great, great guys. guys. We say on on yeah, record. The one I'm uh, speaking of is uh, I drink your podcast. Ooh. Oh. Which is they just moved on from 2007 to 2010, so I can't wait to catch up on that. But yeah, <laughs> great show. Uh, but yeah, so I was planning on doing that and then schedules got mixed up. I couldn't spare the time to do it, but then 
when I was given the selection of possible movies to talk about and I saw that, immediately my eye just went zip right there. <laughs> like, good, finally. Finally, I can talk about this movie. Well, we're glad we could help you out with that regard because, uh, yeah, it is a uh, a good movie. You know, controversial to say, being, uh, being <laughs> that it's on the National Film Registry, but it's a good flick. Hold on, guys. Good movie. <gasps> hold on, hold on to your ass, boys. Everybody listening on your on your Simplecast or your Spotify, make sure you're in traffic and there's not a lot of danger. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck with your heads right now. Bringing up baby would recommend. Uh, it's funny. So I first saw this movie a long time ago. I was looking it up because I remember I was I was getting really into movies and old Hollywood when I was in high school. Uh, you know, like all the cool kids do. And uh, I remember. In like 2004, 2005, Warner Brothers was putting out all those DVD sets. I've, I've talked about those gangster sets on this show the before. two-disc special editions? Yes. Oh, God, that was the peak year. Oh, my I, God, so good. I, I lament the end of Warner Night at the Movies, hosted by Leonard Malton on those DVDs all the time. <sighs> so good. Newsreel, Looney Tunes. Yes. Oh, so good. The, and the shorts. It's like yeah. the only place you can find those shorts. But I remember that around the same time they put out the two-disc of Bringing Up Baby and the two-disc of Philadelphia Story. I don't know which one I saw first, but I remember vividly, because, you know, I was young. I didn't know, like, all the ins and outs of old Hollywood. And I just remember seeing uh, Bringing Up Baby, and here's this poster, and here's Catherine Hepburn, and here's Cary Grant, and here's a leopard. And I'm looking at it, and my understanding of Catherine Hepburn at that point is, one of our great dramatic actresses, right? I think I had seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I had seen bits of On Golden Pond, serious dramatic actress. Cary Grant at this point, I knew from uh, North by Northwest, serious dramatic actor. And I think I'd seen bits of Charade. So I remember looking at this and seeing Hepburn and Grant and going, well, this must be awful. These two can't <laughs> carry a comedy. They're serious actors. Um, I saw it. I felt absolutely in love with it and i i started down a, a Cary grant rabbit hole i remember picking up mr blanding's builds his dream house philadelphia story um and i was so thrilled uh, i think last year uh my my partner was looking for things to watch i saw bringing up baby on hbo max i told her like watch this you'll enjoy it she got a huge kick out of it which gave me a chance to revisit it and i think it's it's so interesting when you're talking about because ryan you mentioned like 1938 1939 right and a lot of the movies that are great from those years are movies like uh, Gone with the Wind, movies like Jezebel, or movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Wizard of Oz. Any of these movies that are remembered as the great ones are so precise. They're so immaculately crafted, right? I mean, we did our whole Gone with the Wind episode in season one, and we kept saying, like, undeniably, the craft in this movie is incredible. What I think is so interesting about bringing up Baby is it is perhaps the first great movie we've done that feels like it was entirely an accident. <laughs> you know, like it, yeah. it, it has serious improv energy. Like, obviously, they were improvising on the set all the time. But like this is Howard Hawks, who we're also going to be covering later this season for his John Wayne Western Red River and who made The Thing from Another World and all these different genres in a weird way like bringing a baby is almost almost a proto apatow film in that it was just like howard hawks bringing these people together and going let's see what works let's just go let's just let's just riff let's just you know 
scenes will happen and, and, and events will happen and you just go with it because you're just having fun with these people, you know? It's chaos. It's chaos. It's 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 very controlled chaos, but I will also say that at least you gotta give uh credit to the technical craft of it. It is still like even in high def criterion disc, the seamless way they like do the 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 plates and like hide that oh, yeah. the, the the leopard is not actually sometimes with them like sometimes because Captain Hepburn's a fucking maniac she's actually like like petting a yeah. like a live murderous cat and hanging <laughs> out with it but then all the times it's clearly like okay it's a split screen or they used a plate or whatever and it's still actually like pretty seamless in a way that even like some movies made I don't know this year don't look that like seamlessly integrated into each other yeah there are like two or three shots where you can tell what the what the trick is like there's one that is the puppet that has so limited movement that it might as well be an animal on the jungle cruise (laughs) like it just goes that's it and then the scene where she's dragging the leopard into the jailhouse you can see that the rope doesn't match up with the plate (laughs) But other than yeah. that, like this is a this is a screwball comedy, but it's a legitimate visual effects movie. Yeah, which which uh, is such a contradiction in terms, but I think works to its favor. Contradiction in terms, especially I mean these days, since we've really lost the thread and and making comedies, uh, especially romantic comedies, but comedies in general that you know look good and put any sort of effort into their technical craft. Like, not to be a podcaster with three guys that's about to shit on the 2016 Ghostbusters movie, but, like, that's a movie where the technical craft is not up to what you want it to be, being that it's a sci-fi comedy as compared to this movie where the only special effects they really need to worry about is, well, let's make sure it looks like there's actually a leopard next to Cary Grant. And you go, well... Seems like Howard Hawks maybe put a little more thought into the movie he was making than some people today, you know. Well, I, I agree. I think when I was talking about the, the slapdash nature or the by mistake, I think it's more the case of like one thing that struck me watching this, and we'll get into it as we go, um, because I didn't realize how much of an influence it was. But before I even looked anything up, Ryan, we a couple weeks ago on this show did The Freshman, the Harold Lloyd movie. Oh, nice. And yeah, and I went down a real uh, Harold Lloyd uh, research vest and we talked about, you know, Lloyd and Lloyd's style of filmmaking, which was I'm going to think of the big comedic set pieces first and the stunts and all that first and then figure out how the story gets there. Watching Bringing Up Baby, I kept thinking about Lloyd and I kept thinking about how it felt very much like a Harold Lloyd film where it was kind of just going like, I know the antics I want to happen. I know the moments of escalation and the magic trick is that I can pull it all together in a way that feels cohesive. And I find that interesting because it turns out Hawks was very much inspired by Harold Lloyd and wrote the Cary Grant part for Lloyd, which is why, yeah, he wrote it for Lloyd, which is why uh, Grant has the Harold Lloyd glasses and all that. Ah. And in fact, the scene the the bit with them in the in the restaurant where the clothes rip right mm-hmm. is taken from the freshman there's a whole sequence in the freshman where his clothes are falling apart cuz the tailor did a bad job that's right yeah so i thought that that was so interesting so when i talk about you know the the by mistake you know i absolutely the technical stuff is is brilliant i i i i guess what strikes me is it's one of those movies that manages to be 
fun, you know, incredible moments and incredible set pieces, but manages to tie them together in a way that like, that's, you know, like Tom, you were talking about, like you mentioned Ghostbusters, right? Yeah. And I think that one thing is when you watch the original Ghostbusters, which I'm not disparaging that film at all, but you realize like, yeah, this isn't necessarily a, a, a movie that on paper has like the most linear plot, but it somehow pulls off the magic or trick of making it even has or even has paper stacked together to make a script. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's that's, the same that's... kind of energy there. You know, and it's, visually it's... is stitched together with band aids and prayer. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yes. I mean, a hundred percent. And that, I mean, that is kind of the thing that is crazy about this movie. Like you said, it does feel like anarchic and kind of like. They're making it up as they go. This script is kind of miraculous that it can have that feel, but then literally every little breadcrumb they they drop throughout the movie just comes colliding together in the jail at the end, mm-hmm. where you just go, "Oh, okay, this is." They, they it felt like maybe like halfway through when you know they're throwing rocks at a roof and she gets like tried to get the guy tries to institutionalize. You go do they know where they're going here? Cause a lot of shit's just happening and scenes are going on pretty long. And then at the end, it's just like, okay, they, they know they, this is why this Howard Hawks guy, he had a, he had a pretty good career. Yeah, it, it dovetails into this drawing room, French farce that kind of yeah. uh, wraps everything up in a bow. Each time I've watched this, I laugh so hard when all the, when the cops all turn around to like start writing down notes and she just runs out the window. <laughs> Like, that's just a pitch perfect, like, cause you, like, you know, it's coming and like any comedy, like even after this, like specifically today with how much they cut, there'd be so many different cuts and everything, but it's just wide shot, just plays out wide and they all turn and she just runs and it, and it doesn't cut until they all turn around. And it's just, it's so fucking funny. I think it's interesting. Cause I think that part of that too, and I've noticed that with comedies, not just this, his girl Friday, uh, but mm-hmm. you look at a lot of those Cary Grant comedies like a Mr. Blanding's, like a Philadelphia story. When you mention the physical comedy, one thing I think is interesting about that is that I was thinking about how th- this generation of comic filmmakers in the 30s and the 40s, they do get physical comedy better and they do uh, execute it better on screen, I think in part because they learned off of silent comedies. So even though yeah. they can now put dialogue in their movies and they can now have crackling banter and all that, that doesn't become a substitute for visual humor in the way that like films in the 50s and 60s and so on would later kind of, well, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's the way, uh, you know, film progresses. It, it, things don't just um, change immediately and we forget, you know, it's that progression of silent comedies with all the physicality. So they start doing that. It's kind of, you know, you look at uh, movies in the 90s when Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park came out. It wasn't like an immediate everything is CGI. It's it took a few years until we started going. Did we really need to make, you know, the Scorpion King that CGI? Did he need to be that that badly animated? It's just the way everything kind of takes a little bit, you know, movies it's a a slow moving industry i and i'm saying that as a positive by the way i'm saying that yeah that 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 it wasn't something where like like for example if you look at um you know to talk about a a clear divine comedy you know um you know everybody talks about the the early funny woody allen films right that's the the way they're referred to those early films that he did like bananas sleeper those like that 
there's a ton of physical comedy. There's a lot of very interesting visual gag. And then once he hits that kind of Annie Hall streak, it is just a movie that's a script. You know, I mean, I love the Gordon Willis cinematography in Manhattan, but like it is a thing that just becomes about the script. You know, Preston Sturgis kind of straddles that line, too. We just did last week Sullivan's Travels. Um, Well, I don't know what order it's coming out in, but that was what Maynard was on for was was Sullivan's Travels. And I think that I'm sorry, tell me your time. Well, I mean, just because you're saying Sullivan's Travels, it almost feels like that's what it's what Sullivan's Travels was like pretty much all about. It feels like physical comedy is looked down upon at a certain point. Once we got into sound and we could have, you know, the words dominate the screen, it start. it felt like it's be started becoming a thing of, Oh, well that's just for, you know, children, children are going to laugh when Mo gets slapped in the face with a brick or whatever. And it doesn't have to be as this movie shows. Well, I, I think that part of that is that, you know, and and to to bring it back to a movie that I've now brought up on this podcast, this is the third time this season I'm bringing it up. Um, I let somebody we need a bell for it, uh, which is the sins of Harold Diddlebach, <laughs> Preston Sturgis' oh film that he made with. So Preston Sturgis made this film with Harold Lloyd. He got Lloyd out of retirement in the '40s to make Sins of Harold Diddlebach, which very much is trying to do bringing up baby. Uh, are you familiar with Sins of Harold Diddlebach, Brian? Yes, yeah. in a in a vague sense, not in terms of a, a hardcore into it. But you can please go on. You can find it on YouTube. It's in the public domain. It's a thing that you could sit through if you feel like it. Um, but there's a whole running bit <sighs> with him and a love interest and a lion, like very much Preston Sturgis going, ah, "Hawks, you bastards! You thought you could do Harold Lloyd. I'm going to do Harold Lloyd with Harold Lloyd." But the thing that strikes me about it is, is since Harold Tittlebach is in- interminable. Because it's all about the dialogue. The physical humor dies. The dialogue that should be funny, you know, there's gags in there that should be funny, but they just, you know, land like a lead balloon. Because one thing that struck me watching that and then going to Bringing Up Baby is the idea of it's not just that it has physical humor. It's that the physicality gives an energy to the dialogue and makes the dialogue funnier than it would be on its own if you had just had carrie i know it's an obvious example but if you just had carrie grant standing at the door going i just went gay all of a sudden and just and just saying it it's a gag it's good but the leap that he does sells the line better the understanding of the visuals helping the lines instead of just relying on the lines i think is something that hawks understands so well in this film yeah, that's a particularly very Hawksian thing. Like, that is a very ineffable quality that he had. I mean, I love Preston Surges. He's like the birth of the writer-director, but I, I can see where you're, I mean, where you're going with that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, that takes a certain canny knowledge that is not something you can just have. That's something that you need to establish. That's something that you need to build over a certain amount of time. And that's something that he certainly does. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's definitely a thing of like, between this podcast and just being a, you know, a vociferous eater of all cinema, like you, you, like you see the difference, like at the time, you know, the two Western guys were basically John Ford and Howard Hawks. And we talk about them a lot. You like watching this, you get a sense that Howard Hawks, he's a dialogue guy. 
I mean, he could do action, obviously, because he does the Westerns with Rio Grande and stuff like uh, Rio Bravo and stuff like that. And uh, John Ford can, too. But when they get out of the Westerns, their two modes are like so different. John Ford has this very stoic kind of, you know, respectable thing to him where Howard Hawks is making quote unquote silly trifle like this, where. You know, Catherine Hepburn is running around looking for a leopard and Cary Grant just wants his goddamn dinosaur bone. <laughs> you know, like 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 John Ford, when he's not making Westerns, he's making The Grapes of Wrath, Young Mr. Lincoln. He's not How he's not making my valley. Yeah, he's not the quiet, for the most yeah. part. Yeah. yeah, he's not for the most part making silly, silly shit. And unless the it's quiet like, man's probably his silliest. Yeah. Right. I mean, he, he made yeah. a he made a movie with Edward G. Robinson that I'm forgetting the name of uh, the whole town was talking. Uh, where Edward, that, yeah. I mean, but even that's like a forgotten, like just a movie he did. Yeah. And, if he does, like, yeah. If he does silly shit, it's more like Lil Abner esque kind of humor, but like, you know, but like John Ford's not doing a movie like his girl Friday where Howard Hawks is like, all right, we're going to cram 500 pages of script in an 85 minute movie. You guys got to talk as if you just did this new thing called cocaine. <laughs> You know, I made this movie called Scarface, and it's going to influence a movie in the 80s. And I want you to talk like the people that were making that movie. I know you haven't seen it yet. Time travel isn't invented yet, but I'm telling you, Scarface 1981, talk like you made that movie. It's it's so interesting you said, like, because that's, that's the other thing is is that, you know, I was looking at their careers up until this point, the people involved in it. And one of the things that struck me is that uh, Grant... So Grant was not the person that they thought of for the role originally. It was written for Catherine Hepburn, obviously, as we mentioned up top, because she had, at that point, that young, plucky starlet thing. It was not intended for Grant. Um, It was, uh, I believe, uh, at one point, uh, Hawks considered Carol Lombard for the role, but they went with Catherine Hepburn. But in terms of who he wanted for the, the role, originally wanted Harold Lloyd. The producers rejected Lloyd. They suggested Robert Montgomery, Frederick March, or Ray Milland, all of which would be chaotic. Uh, but Howard Hughes suggested Cary Grant because Grant had just wrapped up uh, The Awful Truth, which came right. out you know, the year prior. What I think which is has so- a recurring cast member from this movie, the dog. It does indeed. George. George, a.k.a. Asta. Tom, did you recognize George, a.k.a. Asta? Oh, oh. I watched all the Thin Man movies this year. There we I go. remember Asta. There we go. The best. The best. So he wanted Grant. Grant apparently didn't think he could do it. He apparently was nervous about playing an intellectual role, you know, so they gave him glasses. They, you they know, pulled the she's all they, that. Glasses, I, I was, code, smart. They pulled a Stallone and Tango and Cash uh, on Cary Grant. Because <laughs> Cary Grant was like, prior to this movie... Cary Grant, you know, had played, I mean, in the awful truth, he's not so much a putz, but like one of his earliest roles is in She Done Him Wrong, the the Mae West movie, where his job is just to play dumb hunk, right? Yeah. And there's something about like, he was basically, to go back to Ghostbusters 2016 again, uh, in She Done Him Wrong, he's the Chris Hemsworth in Ghostbusters Answer the Call. He's that type of role. So to see him do this, this intellectual buttoned-up guy, I think, is is so interesting because you talked about Hawks and kind of his way of doing comedy. I think that one thing that's so interesting about it is that he was able to get this somewhat different energy out of both 
Hepburn and Grant than they had done before in this movie. He's not relying on necessarily their previously established personas, which I think is such an interesting element of this. It definitely feels, at least in Hepburn's view, um, because like you said, it was another case of, oh, Hepburn's box office poison. It almost felt like a purposeful uh, shift in gears for her trying to do something different. You know, like this isn't little women or whatever. You know, she's trying to uh, break free and show her range, which I mean, she pretty much assassinates this movie. Like she's, I think like far and away the MVP of this movie because not to denigrate Grant, he's great in the movie, but this is a Carrie Grant. Like he's Carrie Grant, you know, Oh, no, she's trying to stop me from getting my dinosaur bone. Oh, boy, what am I going to do? Judy, Judy, Judy. I just want to get out of Connecticut and get married. I, I, can I, can I just make one point right now that I I need to make sure both of you are aware of? No. I decided to Google Catherine Hepburn so I could pull up her filmography to, to reference what she had done prior to this. And when I did that, under top stories, as we record this, under top stories, this was reported 12 hours ago. Oh, no. Has she been canceled? The headline on Yahoo, Brian Blessed wanted to have had sex with Catherine Hepburn. So that's... Well, you know, the public's got to know. The public that's... has got to know. I just... He saw Catherine Hepburn and he just said, Dive! It's... <laughs> it's... He's, and the, the picture they use is Brian Blessed just at a red carpet with his thumbs up like this. <laughs> Who's thought I'm about sorry. having sex with Catherine Hepburn? <laughs> this guy. It's, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to break the train of thought, but that was just such a strange thing to see. Um, I mean, amazing. I just, I've just, I, that, that, that broke me for a minute. Um, okay. So what you're saying about Cary Grant's interesting too, uh, Tom, because I think that one thing about this movie that I didn't get when I watched it the first time because I was a kid. Prior to this year, I hadn't seen it since I was young, right? I don't rewatch a lot of movies often, and that I had seen, and I remember really liking it, and I, I moved on. Um, and I just knew it was a classic. I remember seeing uh, people make the observation that they make in the registry statement where they say it might be the first film to reference uh, gay, uh, to use gay as a reference for homosexuality. And while that's not entirely true, I've got some other facts here about how that all works out or what, when that happened, when uh, the first film was. The one thing that struck me was when I first read that a couple years ago, when I saw that assertion, or a decade ago, God, uh, when I first saw that assertion, I kind of went, I don't know. You know, like kind of just going like, sure, it could be, but did they mean that? I don't know. Watching it this time and, and watching it, you know, earlier this year when I watched it, I at that point it became kind of undeniable because I did not appreciate when I watched this when I was younger just how kind of playfully sexually charged the whole movie is. You know, that there's so oh, yeah. many It's horned up. Yeah, there's so many kind of body towing the line jokes in this. Like right from the get go, that gag up top where it's, you know, because, yes, you're right, he's playing the Cary Grant, like, the buttoned up, like, oh, I nip. But at the same time, like, you have that great bit up top where he's talking to his fiance and she's going, well, there will be no, you know, there will be no honeymoon. There will be no marital business during this marriage. And he just goes, oh, you mean we won't. Uh, ooh. And he doesn't say it, but, like, right <laughs> off the top, a great bit and a, a great kind of, like, right. 
the subtext of this movie is he's about to marry a woman who will never sleep with him and then meets Catherine Hepburn, a woman who is very outgoing and is just telling him how attractive he is and all that. Like, it is a woman very... who will literally fuck him to death on yeah. top of a brontosaurus. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's that same kind of, like, it happened one night energy of, like... You know, there's a there's a winkingness to it that now when I watch it, I'm like, yeah, no, they Cary Grant absolutely because it was an ad lib by Cary Grant that I just went gay right. all of a sudden that he absolutely knew what he was doing. They the, everybody on set knew absolutely what the gag was, but it was just just outside the line enough that they could get away with it. And we well, have the benefit the of 70 years of context. Yeah. So oh, yeah. all of that comes out in the wash eventually. I mean, it's it, because it's definitely like a thing we've talked about before. This we're now in the postcode uh, American cinema industry. They're gonna have to start playing a little uh, a little cute with how they want to you know tackle adult things, which in the end almost makes them in this case a lot goddamn hornier than they probably would have gotten away with just four or five years prior, where they could be a little more risque outwardly, and this one has to be. A little more like, at the end, you go, huh, I guess they're going to fuck each other's brains out. <laughs> and I, I think that that's, I think that's to the movie's benefit in a lot of ways. Because it is mm-hmm. the kind of movie that you yeah. could show a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or whatever, and the zany antics will make them laugh. But that, you know, the adults in the audience get kind of the subtext and what's going on. And it gives it this, especially because since Grant's character is so kind of buttoned up and repressed, it gives the movie an extra manic energy that no one, everybody is talking around everything, right? Like every single thing, there's so much obfuscating and there's so much, you know, well, leopard doesn't really mean, you know, when she says I have a leopard, he's like, well, that can't be a real leopard. And well, he's a hunter, but he's also, everybody's like playing. It just adds to the energy, I think. The only thing that I think is actually direct in terms of being risque is the torn dress. Yes. That's basically the one moment where you look at it and they go, wow, you could do that? Really? In 1938, you could do that? (laughs) But everything else, yeah, it's kind of it's it's going around, it's circumventing, and you know, if I was a if I was a five year old watching this movie, I would be amused, but m- my parents would be having a much better time than I would, because they would see everything. I would have no idea. Yeah, and I, you know, I think you mentioned that the clothes tearing. That's a great bit because the other thing about that that I find so interesting is, so her dress is ripped, and he slaps you know, her behind with the hat to cover her. What I find so interesting about that is is that I think another movie and, and the reaction of most characters, especially at that time, would be absolute, you know, well, how dare you, and a slap in the face. And it tells you so much about Hepburn's character right away that she's just like, all right, what are you doing here, pal? You know what I mean? <laughs> that she thinks his hand is on her on her behind, and she's just kind of like, oh, all right, let's maybe, let's maybe tone it down, but as opposed to like, not in public. Not yeah, in public. Sir. Exactly. You know, I I think that that's so great. It's this. I mean, I I have in my notes. I wrote down. You know, uh, Catherine Hepburn, the OG manic pixie dream girl. And I was I was kidding a bit, but in a way, like this is the formula that gets you know uh, dialed down and used in so many indie films and all that. Which is, he's a buttoned up guy who needs to you know uh, loosen up, and she has no inhibitions and needs someone to help pull her down. And like that dynamic works 
It just it this plays is, like gangbusters. This is like basically the first romantic comedy. Like, you know, I'm sure not technically, but this just feels like the Rosetta Stone for so many things. Like, uh, you know, from when Harry met Sally to whatever, 15 years, ugh, 15 years ago with Knocked Up. You know, like this is every rom-com these days. We just got one a month ago with uh, The Lost City. It's literally the same goddamn story. The way that it diverges from the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, though, is that she seems to be actively trying to ruin his life at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Like, you become concerned, like, she's going to end up getting somebody killed, something terrible is going to happen, and then it eventually leads him to to kind of give up his inhibitions. But as it starts, you're like, how far is this actually going to go? Like, wh- to what end will she go to actually break him out of his funk? Well, She's that's, like a trickster god. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I think what's interesting is the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, we in the audience are supposed to fall in love with her, right? Like, that's kind of the trick, is we're supposed to be... The beauty of this movie is that we are not supposed to fall in love with Catherine Hepburn. Nobody watching this... I mean, look, don't get me wrong. It's young Catherine Hepburn. She's she's adorable. She's great. We're not supposed to be like, I want that person. And, and the other people in the audience aren't supposed to be like, I want Cary Grant. You're just watching it going, these two deserve each other. You don't want to project yourself onto them. You have just done, which I think is the much better thing that romance films and romantic comedies can do, which is not create a love interest. Because the big complaint you get a lot when it comes to romance films today, right, is that if a, you know, typically, as, as has been pointed out a lot with a lot of male screenwriters, they will write a female love interest that you absolutely see what the male character sees in her but nobody can understand what she sees in him. That's the Manic Pixie Dream Girl problem a lot, is you kind of look at it and go, okay, I don't really get what Natalie Portman sees in Zach Braff, you know, like that kind of thing. In this, you get what she sees in him, you get what he sees in her, even if he doesn't see it right away, and you understand ultimately, like, yeah, these two should wind up together, even though you would not want to be in a room with either of them. Yeah. Well, actually, to be fair, I wrote down, if if Catherine Hepburn showed up in my life and just started messing things up, I would be smitten. <laughs> I'd be okay with it. I'd be 100% okay with it because it's young Catherine Hepburn. Are you kidding me? I'd, I'd, be, I'd be pretty okay with it. it, which is interesting, too, because they, you know, they juxtapose by having us, we meet Cary Grant's, you know, wet rag of a fiancé, but we never meet, like, anyone that's like pining after Hepburn or another guy that's kind of like of a similar strata to kind of get the sense of like, Oh, well we get why she likes Cary Grant because all the guys in her life are, you know, fucking idiots or whatever. And he's clearly a smart guy, even if he's a bit of a, you know, stuck up little doofus, you know, we see why he's going to end up falling for her because one, she fucks. She's very, you know, she's going to bring some life to the party. It's interesting that we never really get that. The closest we get is that weird little stuffy, like Hercule Perot, uh corporal guy who shows up at the at the house towards the end. He's like, "Well, yes, I know. I know what a loon sounds like. What did you know what a loon sounds like? But I, I, I've never, I've never. What? What? No, I'm not Moan. I'm Corporal. You know, I'm sorry. That's about as far as we get it. I'm sorry, Tom. I, I, I don't know what character you're talking about. I'm going to need a little more there for me to figure out. I have no idea what you, what you meant. 
<laughs> well, I've never had a lamb chop in my life. I've always had pork chops. What is a lamb chop? I don't, what? What? Oh, there's a leopard. <laughs> what the hell? I'm having a brain fart, but the little alien that hangs out with Fred Flintstone. The Great the Gazoo. Great gazoo. Yeah. 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 Just the, the Great Gazoo just shows up in the middle of this movie. And, and he's that's calling like everybody old... dum-dums. You know, he's yeah, doing his thing. Call... He's calling everybody dum-dums. You know, the leopard is, uh... God, what is Dino? Uh, and the ask, leopard turns think... to the camera and says, it's a living. It's a living. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting structurally and script-wise that they don't uh, have a similar character for her for us to realize, like, oh, yeah, we get why she's going to like this guy. It's just immediately like, oh, yeah, she she needs someone to ground her a bit. And it's interesting, like, everybody in this movie is a screwball. Mm-hmm. Every single yeah. character is. And I know that Hawks said later on that that was a mistake. But I think that while I would usually defer to his knowledge because he would know better than I would in terms of structure, I think that it actually works in this movie's favor that it's so absolutely compoundedly insane that you kind of just have to fall in love with it. There's really no other response. It's just the rules of the world. She's just so wantonly, destructively wandering through the world. She's stealing people's cars and being like, oh yeah, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. And she's just, you know, causing all sorts of mayhem that if if there was at least, if there was like one person that felt like a real human being, the whole deck of cards would crumble because then you would go, oh, okay, everyone's just playing this wrong. You know, this is post, it's, no, it's a cartoon. It's yeah. a cartoon yeah. and- we need that balance. I was thinking about, because we were talking about Preston Sturgis before, when I was rewatching this, in prep this, I was thinking about the Lady Eve, the, the Preston Sturgis. Yes, comedy. I wrote that down, that I got serious Fonda Stanwyck vibes from this, this interaction between the two of them. But it's so interesting, because the difference there is that in the Lady Eve, we're rooting, we're, we're, Stanwyck is our character we're rooted in. And, it, you know, there is the same energy of, in the Lady, for those who haven't seen it, in the Lady Eve, Barbara Stanwyck is a con woman who uh, spots wealthy idiot uh, Henry Fonda and decides, like, I am going to get that man come hell or high water, right? And then she actually falls for him, and there's the same energy Hepburn has in this film of, like, uh, that's the man I'm going to marry. He doesn't know it yet. Like, that kind of thing. The difference here is that in The Lady Eve we're ostensibly on Stanwyck's side. You know, we're following her journey and that we're kind of like, you know, we're we're rooting for Stanwyck because she's a real person. She's grounded. She's smart. She knows what's going on. And Fonda's the oblivious idiot. In this, neither Hepburn nor Grant know what's going on. There's no person in control. Whereas in Lady Eve, Stanwyck's in control. She's our person who's in control. She's running the show and we're following her and we're rooting for her. We're not even rooting for anyone in this film insofar as we're just like looking at a bunch of stuff going on. And I mean this in the best way that we're looking at these madcap characters and just going, let's see what they get into. You know, it's not like you're, you're at no point actually rooting for Cary Grant to get back to Connecticut and get married. You don't even know if you're rooting for the two of them to wind up together you're mostly just waiting to see what the next thing is. You just want to see what they get up to next, you know? It's like being at a party and uh, someone gets up and starts making the most unhinged drunk statement. And you don't want to <laughs> interrupt them because the first thought you have is, I want to see where they're going with this. 
mm-hmm. and it could end up getting disastrous. Like it could end up being absolutely the worst thing ever, but you're so rooted in it because it's like, well, what else is there to really do in this situation, but kind of just sit back and be like, all right, entertain me. What do you got? That doesn't sound familiar at all. I wouldn't know anything about that. Why do you bring it up? You know what's you know what's interesting too though is uh, speaking of somebody getting drunk. You know, it just occurred to me. You know what else it kind of feels like? It kind and it's a movie that's you know uh, decades later, and uh, certainly I don't know if it's getting in the registry anytime soon. But it's a little bit like the Ed Helms character in The Hangover. It's not like you're necessarily rooting for him or anything like that. And you know he's the same kind of buttoned up, bespectacled fella. But there is this thing of just like. I just want to see this guy get broken down. You know, mm-hmm. like the Cary Grant character, yeah, you don't want him to to wind up with the woman who's cold to him, but it's not this kind of like saving Silverman angle of like, ah, that, you know, that old uh, battle axe, because we barely spend any time with the woman he's supposed to marry. It's not about necessarily pitting one woman against the other. It's just like, this dude's uptight. This dude's a stiff. I want to see... Like, the fun of this movie is how exasperated he gets at Hepburn's antics. Yes, it, it takes on the properties of a stress dream. Yeah. Where you're like, it, he's going he's gonna to collapse, but, you know, pressure makes diamonds. So it could go one of two ways. It could go he ends up killing her, which is completely <laughs> valid. Or it could end up he ends up changing and kind of like, uh, this is a weird pull. But have you seen The In-Laws? The original? Yes. Not the Albert... Yeah where it's basically the story of somebody who is pressuring another person into slowly going insane. Cary Grant is the Alan Arkin character here. And Catherine Hepburn is Peter Falk. He just keeps on saying outlandish, insane things. And eventually it's, it's going to be like, yeah, sure. That makes sense. Whatever. I don't know. I'm done. What, what do you got? Let's go. And it's also, you know, our friends over at the, the blank check podcast are doing the, the films of Sam Raimi as we record this. Yes. And their assessment of, the character of Ash, the Bruce Campbell character. Um, I forget who said it, but somebody on the show said, the thing about Ash is that the deadites are taunting him and harassing him, not because he's particularly cursed or particularly evil. They're doing it just because it's really funny to watch him freak out. <laughs> like they're, they're tormenting him because he's the funniest person to torment. And if he didn't react the way he did, it wouldn't be worth doing. And I do think that there is something about the dynamic between Hepburn and Grant in this, where the more mad he gets, the more attracted to him and the more drawn to him she becomes. Not angry, but mad as in, like, the more manic she makes him, the more fun it is for her. The more exasperated she gets. She's twisting him him. around her finger. And she loves it, you know. And it leads to some great exchanges that I'm, you know, there's that... There's a line I jotted down because I love so much, which is Grant going, now it isn't that I don't like you, Susan, because after all, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn to you. But, well, there haven't been any quiet moments. What a great line. (laughs) What an A plus. What a great line. It's in the AFI registry, isn't it? As one of the hundred greatest lines of all time. Is it? Oh, yeah, I think so. Well, it's like uh, my favorite line in Superman. It's not that I don't trust you, Otis. But but I don't trust you, Otis. Where, what, what's the code? <laughs> well, it's like, because what's great about that line, too, is like, it sets up both characters in terms of, it sets up his exasperation, right? But it also establishes, like, he's so desperate to be polite. 
and to not yeah. upset this woman. Like, he does not want to in any way upset the woman who is ruining his life. And that tells <laughs> yeah. you everything you need to know about the character. And when he finally snaps in that moment that I love, uh, I put it in our trailer, uh, for folks who watched our trailer on, on YouTube or Twitter, which is when he steps on her foot. Mm-hmm. When he's like trying to, when she's talking to him and he like finally is like trying to talk and he just stomps on her foot because he's just lost it. And her reaction is so good. That's the other thing is Hepburn, Hepburn's reactions in this movie are so good. Her, she takes a pratfall like a fucking champ, right? Oh, in that scene where she's on the phone trying to convince him, no, I actually oh. have a leopard. And she just eats shit over the phone line. <laughs> and then he tumbles. That's the yeah. best part is when he goes. <laughs> no, she's the, the the physical comedy she performs in this movie is so good, and and then the the perfect way they edit. I think the hardest I laugh in the movie is when they at the end when they're like, "Oh no, Susan's out looking for the wrong leopard," and it just hard cuts to her dragging <laughs> the wrong leopard into the police station, and she has no idea. She's just so like, "Come on, god damn it, come on! Why are you pouring at me? Let's go." And there's, like, it, that could easily go wrong in terms of the way that it's done. Like, it could end yeah. up becoming an episode of Gilligan's Island, where it's like, you can't make me, you can't make me, yeah. you made me. It's But, yeah, but the way that, that Hawks pulls that off, and especially with the aplomb, that the way that she pulls that leopard and just literally yeah. throws her back into it and just, like, I yeah. gotta get, I gotta get this, come on. <laughs> It's, she's oh, it's just perfect. so, ob- it's and so she's good. just so oblivious. Also, Loki. I don't even know if they thought about it, but it's so funny that she found that leopard so quick after escaping. Because <laughs> it's all in real time, so it's like five minutes after she ru- she escapes from prison, she finds the wrong leopard, manages to get a rope around its neck and drag it across whatever street while she's acknowledging, "Why do you keep pouring at me?" <laughs> that she somehow, like the chaotic god she is from North Norse mythology, was able to not get demolished by this leopard. And it's so interesting you say that about her, because I was thinking about that too, that, that the quick cut that they do, that, that editing, is very Max Senate, right? It's very, you know, old comedy. You know, you'd, you'd typically have, in a silent, that would typically be a thing where you'd have a person speak, you'd do a title card, and you'd do that cut. I do think part of what makes this film interesting too, you know, when when you mentioned Tom, like you you made a comment saying, well, it's the original romantic comedy. It's not, but it is. Obviously, there were romantic comedies before this. You know, we talked about, um, you know, a couple years prior is um, is um, it happened one night. But what I think yeah. is so interesting about this film and what makes the dynamics so good is that in it happened one night, Claudette Colbert is the uptight, frigidy one, and it's Clark Gable's Mr. Charming and Mr. You know, we're going to have some fun. And a lot of romantic comedies for a while after this, the dynamic is typically because it's playing to, you know, uh, it's playing to the, the, uh, what they, you know, considered the, the women's audience at the time. The woman is, you know, she needs to be, uh, she needs to loosen up and, and the guy comes along and gets her to loosen up. You know, that's the, the romancing the stone kind of thing. Right. What I think is so interesting about this is not only is it warping that dynamic where it's Catherine Hepburn is the man trying to get the the, the uptight gal to loosen up in this scenario, but that also Catherine Hepburn's gags and the humor that they give her are the kind of things that 
a Harold Lloyd or a Buster Keaton or a Charlie or like a, you know, what, what have you would have done. There is a lot of Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd in Hepburn's character and in the performance. I think. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Tom's like with the, the way she's like the moment when the two of them sink into the water, she just does that with such a physicality. It's not we're necessarily rooting for her, but she is kind of our main character insofar as she is the character that you're just like, I got to see what they do next. I got to see where this goes. I mean, just even at the end when she's just swaying along yes. on the ladder, just completely oblivious to the absolute danger she's in. It's just, it's the best. I feel like anybody else, you wouldn't really believe that they're just that just completely out of it. And, and it's, so physically adept to not fall over on accident. It's like a drunk. Like when a drunk driving accident happens, it's a drunk driver never gets killed. Yeah, it's, it's just, because they're just so not paying attention and their body's just like, woo. She's just so completely not like. And I, I'm glad you there. mentioned I'm glad you mentioned the ladder because I was thinking about the fact that you wouldn't have the ladder scene now, right? The way no. most comedies are structured. Cause they give that moment at the end the resolution of the film when she does the gangster voice, right? Which is a great <laughs> moment. And most comedies now do that, which is most comedies do the character that's a total chaotic mess has a moment of genius, right? Yeah. Has the moment of, oh shit, we all thought they were a buffoon, but they saved the day. And that's the note we end on. What I love about it is that you have that moment and Hepburn doing the gangster voice is so goddamn funny. She's so good at that. But by doing the latter, it's a little like the story is over, but we're going to give you one last gag. And it's a very, you know, her swinging ladder, very Harold Lloyd, you know, very physical. And and just ending on that note of like, of course, the dinosaur would collapse. Like, of course. Yeah. We're basically giving you the, you know, the, if you will, the post credit scene on this movie of like, Hey, you can infer where everything's going after this. I think that's so great that they let that happen in this. And it lets it end with a gasp. It's kind of like a, whoa, whoa. And then, you know, everything collapses, which is kind of, it, it, it's, it's metaphorical of the, of the house of cards that has been built over the course of an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. Just stacking on top, stacking on top, and then eventually just letting go and letting it all fall to earth. And it's one of those, it's it's a perfect way to, to end that film. Also, just got to say, just the gangster Hepburn voice thing. I just love the bit where she's walking and the, the warden goes, ah, I see you're walking with a limp. Did you get that from taking a bullet from one of your heists? No, I lost my heel. It's so good. <laughs> and it, but, you know, you talk about the, the dinosaur collapsing too. Like, part of that that I think is great is that this movie, it does the little, like, what you think is lip service all the way. And you know, we talked about this up top. Tom mentioned like a lot of characters that show up that you don't think are going to come back again and how they ultimately do that. The dinosaur is introduced up top. Okay. He needs the money for the, you know, he needs the money to dinosaur bone. Got it. Got it. Got it. And for most of the movie, you almost forget about the dinosaur because you accept this is a conceit. He needs money. Okay. They've given us the reason he needs the money for, but ultimately we know he just needs the money and blah, 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 blah. And that's the MacGuffin that carries us through ending on us. Finally seeing the dinosaur only for it to collapse is such a great way of kind of bringing it back to what the plot of this movie ostensibly was about and saying it kind of doesn't matter. I just need my goddamn dinosaur bone to finish the dinosaur. And like, like Ryan said that it's, you know, we built up the house of cards yeah. just to watch it tumble. Literally, we 
build up the house of cards. We put, he gets his bone. He finally puts it into place. Movie ends. We could just, we could just knock this whole fucking thing over and just enjoy that. We did. We went on that entire ride. It's such a neat little package, you know? Well, it's a great script. It's the thing we brought up at the beginning that as anarchic and chaotic as it feels that this isn't like comedies today where it's so heavily improv and it's just like, we'll figure it out in the edit. There is a script there to bring everything together because, well, one, we're shooting on film. Ain't got a lot of fucking money to do that. So we're not spending, you know, we're not shooting the thin red line here. And it is a comedy. We kind of need to know how to shoot this shit. We got to like figure everything out, blah, blah, blah. You you understand, if only for one reason, the script, why this is in the National Film Registry. You know, it's just so immaculate. And now that you place that in my brain, I want to see Terrence Malick's bringing up baby. <laughs> You know, it's God damn it, that's a lot of weed. But it's funny, Tom, you mentioned the precision of the script, and it's a great script. I was looking at my notes here, and I have this that during the filming, Hawks would refer to four different versions of the film script and make frequent changes to scenes and dialogue. Followed by this other note, Hawks, because uh, they would they rant so over schedule, they would shoot from 10 a.m. till after 4 p.m. because Hepburn and Grant would keep having laughing fits, and they couldn't finish the scenes. Huh. Hawks kept changing dialogue and changing things on a whim, they report that he had a leisurely attitude on set. Uh, it took 12 days to shoot the jail scene as opposed to the scheduled five. Hawks blamed the setbacks on the star's laughing fits and having to work with two animal actors. Though I would point out, he apparently also shut down production to just go see a horse race one day. <laughs> so that might also have contributed to the delays. So that's and like Jack just going the, to see the Lakers games. Right? Wasn't the original script 200 pages long? Something akin to the, yes. That's, like, a, yeah. that's insane. That's absolutely insane. Well, that's just the beauty of movies, baby. I mean, fucking people like to talk about the great script of Annie Hall. And if you know anything about the making of that movie, you go, oh, you've only seen a quarter of the script of Annie Hall, my friends. Yeah, so what we can to the credit- murder mystery? Come on, let's, come on, let's dig that What up. happened to the murder mystery? We know this guy now. There must be something about children in here. <laughs> I also wanted to uh, touch on the fact, one thing that struck me watching this, Fritz Feld, who plays the doctor in this film, right? I'm watching him, yeah. and he seems really familiar to me. And I looked, and he was doing these kind of films. He did a ton of these kind of films in the 30s, right? Playing this kind of character. He later, in the 50s, did a bunch... He was in a bunch of Disney films, like The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes and Freaky Friday, playing a similar type of character. And then in the 70s, pops up in a bunch of Mel Brooks movies, like History of the World and Silent Movie. And I was thinking about Fritz Feld and the kind of madcap screwball energy that he has and that he had his whole career. And I thought it was just so interesting that really the through line for that energy and this kind of movie, this kind of antics heavy movie, does kind of go from the studio comedy to the Disney films of the 50s to the Mel Brooks films of the 70s. That that same energy kind of shows up in those three different places along that timeline. I thought that was, you know, something of note. Yeah, there's there's definitely a line connecting all of it. Right, because if you think, yeah, oh, if you 100%. look at, like, an Apple Dumpling Gang or a Gus the Field Goal Kicking Mule or one of those, like, that... Or the Cat from Outer Space. Yeah, or the Cat... Well, the Cat from Outer Space... 
We're pushing it when it's we get the to only the one I can think space. Of. I, I enjoy it, but that movie is nuts to watch now. That is just, there's a lot of scenes of just a man talking to a cat, a la the Matthew Broderick character on, on Rick and Morty, um, which is all you can think of now when you watch it. But I think that that was interesting. But first of all, the other thing I did want to touch on is this this mention of the, um, you know, obviously they acknowledge that uh, this had the use of the word gay in the film. It should be noted, My Weakness in 1933 is a film that used gay as an overt reference to uh, homosexuality where uh, they'd actually have a scene where uh, two men are attracted to the same woman and one of them pitches the solution, quote, let's be gay. That's a, a line in the 30s. They had to muffle it because of the censors. And then This Side of Heaven... <laughs> includes a scene where uh quote i haven't seen the side of heaven but it mentions here uh where a fussy gossipy interior decorator tries to sell a floral fabric pattern to a customer who knowingly reply replies it strikes me as a bit too gay so there are references prior to this film but i do think that it's there's maybe something about the fact that this film manages to fly it so under the radar and get so many eyes on it that that makes that kind of get this reputation as the first film to use that line that way because you know nobody's talking about my weakness these days you know well I mean that's 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 the thing I mean this is the biggest movie to do yeah. it at that point that's the you, you know, know it's I, yeah it's it's the I mentioned it on a previous episode but the, the Harvey Firestein quote I love about La Caja Faux was it the first gay musical no but it was the first gay musical to make money I think that kind of not that this made a ton of money, but... I mean, that's the thing. I mean, fucking four years ago, everybody's talking about Black Panther. The first black superhero movie, and everyone that grew up in the 90s is like, motherfucker, do you remember Blade? Oh, I was going to say Meteor Man, but yes. Well, yeah, Meteor Man. And, and, what about you know, Blank Man, man? Blank Man. Blank. blank Man, Shazam. Uh, uh, is it Kazam? I don't remember. Steel. Kazam. The one with Shaq. Yeah, but you're Steel. Steel. Yeah. Oh, Steel. The two, Oof. The, the two Shaq superhero movies. Uh, well, wait, oh, what a time. Kazam isn't a superhero movie. He's a genie. No, he's a genie. Well, it's, I mean, come on. He's a genie, a who, grants, he he's do... a genie who grants wishes for Weevil from Veronica Mars. Yeah, and he can make candy bars fall from the sky. And do a rap. <laughs> I, I do, oh, so, lastly, uh, I should point out that um, this in the original short story, which was written by Hagar Wilde, who co-wrote the script, it was a panther, not a leopard. Hagar Wilde also wrote I Was a Male War Bride for Howard Hawks, which also features Cary Grant. That's worth checking out if anybody good, hasn't seen it. Good good change. Le- Leopard's better than Panther. Yeah, it just pops better on screen. Um, did anybody else have anything uh, they want to touch on before we wrap up talking about the Oscars? No, I, I mean, just well that covered it. I thought it was interesting as I was watching this that this is the same year as another Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant movie, Holiday. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, I would hope would be entering the uh, registry at some point. I don't think it'll be anytime soon, but uh, it deserves to be at least mentioned that they had a hell of a year yeah. in 38 yep. together. And even the previous year, Grant had both Topper and The Awful Truth, which are both bangers. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Topper, here, I'm going to just like, anybody who's playing You're Missing Out Bingo at home, I'll throw another one out there. Topper, which features a small cameo from, that's right, Arthur Lake. Who got bingo from that one? A lot of things that come up routinely on this show. I think somebody's sitting at home with their card. All right, enough with the off the lake. Waiting to hear if Tom says Ward Bond at some point. Uh, you know, just holding out hope. Oh, all oh, our, I missed that. All man. our recurring bits on this show. I miss. I miss that grizzled bastard. <laughs> we'll get to him. It's all. It's a wonderful ice coming up soon. We'll get to him. Okay, so one thing before we uh, wrap up, let's talk about the Oscars. 
I'm going to throw this out to both Tom and also Ryan, if you didn't look this up ahead of time, uh, which is not a problem if you did, but uh, we're going to talk about the Oscars. How do we think Bringing Up Baby performed at the Oscars? Goose egg. Yeah, I'm going to say zip zero. Correct. Bringing Up Baby was not nominated for any Oscars. For context, uh, the Best Picture nominees that year were The Adventures of Robin Hood, Alexander's Ragtime Band, Boys Town, The Citadel, Four Daughters, Grand Illusion, Jezebel, Pygmalion, Test Pilot, and the winner was another comedy, You Can't Take It With You. It should be noted. Great movie. The Adventures of Robin Hood and Jezebel, both also in the registry. I'm really happy to hear that Robin Hood got nominated. I had no idea, yeah. but I love that film. So that's that's fantastic. And I believe, yeah, so it's that, that did get in. The other thing I thought was so interesting is that Boys Town and Angels with Dirty Faces both come out in the same year, and they are both about priests trying to reform street kids before they become gangsters. Just a real specific thing for two notable movies. <laughs> Tom, have you ever seen Boys Town? No, I have not. I got to tell you, like, it's, I, I hadn't seen it before this year. Kind of rules. I kind of enjoy that movie thoroughly. Now, I've seen Girls Town, but I've never seen Boys Town. Boys Town is, is, a, is a real solid Spencer Tracy and a real solid Mickey Rooney performance. Uh, pretty, pretty darn good. Now, does it have the Bowery Boys in it as well, just like Angels with Dirty Faces? No, that is only Angels with Dirty Faces has the Bowery Boys. Uh, damn. I only take my Too Mickey close. Rooney offensively. <laughs> Uh, but yes, a lot of great stuff that year. Um, but obviously, Bringing Up Baby, not well-received in its year, but it, it made a small profit on re-release in the early 40s. Uh, and even though Hepburn was obviously labeled box office poison at the time by the independent theater owners of America, who also put that label on people like Greta Garbo, kind of like killed a lot of careers with a terrible article. And, you know, I don't know. Film journalism back then felt like they could just say whatever they wanted and not think about the consequences. I'm glad we've learned from that since. And it, I think it's interesting that knowing that it was a flop is just a reminder that theatrical exhibition is just one phase of the journey. Yep, because its like, reputation changed on TV. Flop doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and especially back then when it wasn't, there wasn't a guaranteed second life, you know? So the fact that a movie like that could survive and pick up steam. You know, this is 1938. TVs weren't a fucking thing where, you know, it's, 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 uh, people put too much stock in, as long as a movie is preserved and exists and can be showed uh, after the opening weekend, if it's good, it's going to survive and it'll get its fans and it'll eventually get an obnoxiously lavish 4k Blu-ray set from some, uh, from ridiculous, uh, Blu-ray boutique label, please, guys, send me free things. I love the Blu-rays. You can't Kino see Lorber, it, but you my listening? entire Kino Lorber, baby. Hey, Kino, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin. I don't Second Sight. You just did a great Dawn of the Dead. You're doing Martin on 4K. You're not recording this, but if you guys can see my wall, I want them. Give I mean, them to me for free. But it is. I'll take them too. <laughs> it is that. Uh, it is that thing when we talk about you know television, how that affected it. Like I do think there's something too to the idea of. Like, obviously, you know, one of the things we talked about when we were doing The Freshman is how Harold Lloyd uh, refused to license out his films while Chaplin and Keaton yeah. Wood, which kept their careers going. But the other thing that strikes me about that is when we're talking about bringing up Baby now, it feels so undeniably a classic. It feels so undeniably good that to find out it was not well received in its day feels crazy. And the thing that always strikes me about that is we have so many examples of movies, whether it be 
something like this, you know, a Howard Hawks film or on the opposite end of the spectrum, a remake of a Howard Hawks film, which is John Carpenter's The Thing. Movies that in their day were dismissed and his reputation was toxic and people were like, well, that's obviously a bad movie. And now they're so well respected that the people who said it was bad back then look insane. We can't even see what they're thinking on it. Well, it's like it's like a, it's it's the thing of when something does something new, people reject it because we don't like change. And those kinds of movies end up gaining their audience. One, because people become they want something different after a while. But two, these are this is a movie that everyone who saw it ended up making movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's the Velvet Underground of movies. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, Mel Brooks saw this, Woody Allen saw this, fucking Barry Levinson saw this, Judd Apatow saw this, Carl Reiner saw Everybody who saw this became a comedy guy or gal. You know, Elaine May definitely saw this, you know, with uh, the Heartbreak Kid, definitely. Well, even Carpenter saw this. Not a comedy guy, per se, but, you know, he's a huge Howard yeah. Hawks fan. And this clearly influences things like Big Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China, 100%. This is definitely Jack Burton and Gracie Law a little bit. It's 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 the thing that I feel like everyone doesn't want to acknowledge because we've had this conversation over the last year with uh, the proliferation of Marvel movies made everyone reappraise Zack Snyder's DC movies. Um, we're getting it now with the Michael Bay renaissance where it's, oh, action movies aren't crazy anymore. So let's watch this coked up 80s music video director figure out that drones can go f- super fast on highways. People don't want something different until they do. I mean, and with that, I mean, with nowadays, it's it's perhaps even worse because, and, you know, we don't have to keep this in, but, like, the thing that always drives me nuts is, like, when we talk about the thing or bringing up baby and we go, like, oh, my God, how did people not, you know, appreciate this in its day? How did people not appreciate this when it came out? You know, those critics back then didn't know what they were talking about. And now I'll see people, uh, like, critics, you know, come out and go, like, oh, my God, how did people, you know, God, people have it in their heads that Michael Bay is some kind of idiot. Like, you know, uh, this is a total misconception. Who said that? You did. You had this job then. We have the records. Like, they're doing this turnaround so quickly on things where it's like, oh, my God, how did we let the mortal engines fail? You did. There's the review. It's there. You're already doing the thing. You, know. you guys are the reason I'm not getting Bayformers <laughs> 6 with Unicron, voiced by Werner Herzog. It's your fucking fault, you goddamn it's like, bastards. It's, it's like we the revisionism we do four years later of like, oh, you know, it's it's amazing that people, uh, you know, I don't understand. People don't understand that M. Night Shyamalan's a notorious. You, you did. You wrote this. This is you. You were the people that said it. You know, well, that's the thing. It's people don't want anything unique until they do. Until they realize everything has become so homogenized, they go, oh, shit, there was that one movie that was different, and we kind of kicked it in its ribs because it had the balls to say, things don't have to be this way. Which is kind of funny because uh, Howard Hawks would go on to make a movie in reaction to High Noon, which is saying... Yeah, people don't want to do anything that bought, that changes the status quo. And he goes, no, people would stand up to change things. And uh, Howard Hawks, you are wrong. So if you're looking to, and that's the thing, like I think that there need to be people who are willing to interrogate 
the the popular opinion of the day. I think that's so important because things that were considered bad in their day, maybe you reappraise them now and you go, oh, this is actually you know pretty good. Like a bringing up baby, hated in it, you know, mixed in its day, now well received. There need to be people that do that. Which brings us to that's right, Reels of Justice, a show that. Uh, <laughs> How do you like that? How do you like that transition? Huh? Nice segue. Right? Nice right? segue. Yeah, that is a great. That is a great Woo! segue. You're like Elijah Wood riding on a segue with a cigarette Woo-hoo! in his mouth. How many? I mean, how many movies that were declared? How many seemingly bad movies that were declared not guilty on reels of justice? Maybe the next bringing up baby. Maybe the next in ten, twenty years. People are saying Radioland Murders is a classic. Indeed, you know who knows? I think I already did, but uh, that the record will show that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that's the thing. Like, you and I agree on Radioland Murders. You know, you and I agree on uh, One from the Heart. There's one movie we don't. Not sure what that oh, is. Oh, gee, I wonder what that could be. Oh, one oh, picture. Oh, my God. Hmm. One. I wonder if it's Wiki Wiki Wild. About. Is that it? One, uh, yeah. one movie. <laughs> that, uh... <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, but it, we talked about Real to Just. We had Maynard on. I'm, I'm, I don't know if that episode's coming out before this or not, but uh, you are one of the hosts of Reels of Justice, and you also host The Coolness Chronicles. Do you want to give folks a little bit of overview about what those two projects are? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Coolness Chronicles is a subjective pop culture history podcast, and we just wrapped up 100 episodes on the greatest thing ever, Mystery Science Theater 3000. And uh, we're now deep into the second season, all about the landmark parody film Airplane, the movies and filmmakers that it inspired, and the movies and filmmakers that inspired it from Mel Brooks to the Marx brothers, hot shots to scary movie, the naked gun to ghost. It is a weird semi serialized, fairly unique experience that is frankly exhausting to produce. (laughs) So we'll see how much longer it goes on. And then of course the aforementioned uh, reels of justice, which is a fake movie court where we have a prosecutor defense counsel, judge and jury and try to determine if a film is guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. And we just reached our 100-episode milestone, which we happened to get MST3K's Traceable You to come on and, as you mentioned earlier, defend Glenn or Glenda, which uh, you'll have to tune in to see how that worked out. I'll just say I was uh, saying not guilty, and nobody else agreed with me. It was fun. (laughs) And, of course, uh, Mike threw his hat in the ring recently to defend Wild Wild West. And uh, it's been a wild ride for the past almost two years. And you can find Reels of Justice and The Coolness Chronicles wherever you find podcasts. It's great. And, and uh, you know, when Maynard was on here, I said, you know, I'd be happy to come back on. But now that you set things up the way you did up top, I want you to know I'm happy to come back. But I demand that it, it be a film from before 1927. I think I'll, I, I'm happy to come back. But I think we got to really dip into the silent era. I think we got to bring some hot takes. I want it to be it doesn't I want. I think just once, fuck with your audience and get really innocuous with it. And just like, let's get real passionate about, like, I don't know, uh, you know, um, uh, now I'm trying to think of, you know, like a like a W.C. Fields picture or something, you know. Let's get really. Let's do It's a Gift. It's a Gift. Yeah let's, yeah. let's get real deep in the weeds about Seven Chances with Buster Keaton or something. Let's get real. <laughs> one, one of those early John Ford movies. Yeah. One of the old, old like a William S. Hart Western. It's just, let's get real. And Tom Mix, you know, like, I mean, have you ever had an episode where both attorneys go, I'm indifferent to this, 
You know, maybe it maybe it really jazzed we've up. We've come case. close. We've we've had cases where people have come on to prosecute and ended up defending the movie more than de- <laughs> the defense did. Uh, we in fact just had that. Uh, we just had the other day. We had uh, Kelsey Brady and Emily Marsh from the uh, MST3K live tour. They fought each other over seven, and uh, Kelsey was actually prosecuting it, but ended up defending it more than Emily did. <laughs> and so it kind of struck this this weird balancing act where the judge is supposed to, I guess, step in and say, "Hey, you're kind of hurting your case just a little bit if you keep saying this stuff." But you know, you got to let people. You got to let them uh, find their own way. Uh, if folks want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, I am on uh, Twitter at CoolnessPodRyan, uh, Instagram at The Coolness Chronicles, and uh, on Facebook, Podchaser, Coolness Chronicles, Reels of Justice. You can find me there. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, dude. Everybody else, stick around because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration, on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So, I was thinking about bringing up Baby, there's a lot of different directions one can go. Um, whether it's something with Howard Hawk, something with Cary Grant, something with Catherine Hepburn, all three of them have films that are amazing that should be in the registry and aren't. You could go with the leopard angle and go with an animal in a movie. But the thing that struck me on this viewing is the not just the madcap energy, but the madcap sexual humor of it. And the humor of the sexual politics of the time. This, you know, you have this buttoned up character who's super uptight who is afraid to even express physical desire to the woman he's supposed to marry, who meets this free spirit with this manic energy who basically just brings sexual desire into his life. And it's also a play on the wealthy. You know, there's a lot of class humor in this film, you know, uh, that the that the aunt is is ordering a leopard, things like that. So the idea of class humor and sexual humor together, I think that while we talk about the manic through line kind of going through Disney and through Mel Brooks, that kind of particular, the humor of sexual politics, the bawdiness of it, um, carries through in a different way. And I would think about a film that um, doesn't get talked about a lot anymore, but I think should, because it feels very relevant now in its own way, um, which is the 1969 Paul Mazursky film, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Um, for those who haven't seen it, it's a great four-person cast. Uh, Natalie Wood, Robert Culp, Elliot Gould, and Diane Cannon. The film is essentially... Natalie Wood and Robert Culp play a rich upper crust wasp couple who go to this kind of free love retreat, um, which was big in the, the late sixties and they're not hippies, but they just kind of sample the hippie scene and come away from it. Like a lot of people did in the sixties, which is come away from it going pots fun to smoke and cool. I can sleep around now. And they do. And it's it's about the two of them being very free and open in their marriage and how that affects their friends, Elliot Gould and Diane Cannon, 
who are um, much more reserved and uptight. And the fact that Culp and Wood are having affairs doesn't bother them, but it bothers Gould and Cannon as though they were cheating on each other. And the story from there escalates as these two couples attempt to navigate this new kind of sexual politics. And this essentially this world where social progress has gone, where we're tearing down all the rules. There's no rules anymore. Why did we ever have these rules? These rules are stupid and oppressive and ultimately conclude with them kind of going, oh, that's kind of why we had some of these rules. Some of these make sense. Some of these, okay. Uh, It's a great comedy, a great social commentary, and a perfect depiction of the tail end of the 60s. Um, that I feel feels very in line with bringing up baby's energy and its its sexual politics humor. So uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice absolutely should be in the National Film Register. So with me, like Mike said, there's a lot of angles to go with this. And um, I decided to, I don't know, I feel as usual, go a little, take a loop-de-loop to get to an, the point that a lot that ties into this movie, which is the buttoned up and the free spirit kind of falling for each other thing. But as Mike has known me for a long time, the love stories I tend to gravitate towards are the ones where the love doesn't last and not in that they end up hating each other or whatever. But there's like this acknowledgement of we can't be together for whatever reason, like Streets of Fire is one of them I've talked about before. And so a movie kind of hit me that falls into that uptight free spirit thing where the love doesn't. Uh, stay forever but is always in each other each person's heart it's just a thing where they have to always just this unrequited thing that's going to stay a memory for them and uh, I think it is a beautiful movie it's very down to earth it's not it's totally nothing like this movie but I think uh, in its way you could kind of see some similarities in the relationship Uh, but then like I said it takes a whole different turn it's uh, this movie came up because I have been in need for comfort food for the last month because of a lot of shit in my life. And uh, Clint Eastwood is one of those comfort food guys for me. And I think one of his best movies, one of his least talked about movies is the bridges of Madison County. Uh, I think that is a beautiful, heartfelt, very emotional, very well-observed movie about this uh, Italian housewife who is kind of awakened passionately by this, wandering photographer played by clint eastwood he's the free spirit she's the uptight one they find this connection that they never thought they could have with each other but there's just that kind of thing that happens in real life where she you know she does actually love her husband and she loves her family and she doesn't want to give it up and she also realizes that maybe things with this free spirit's not gonna last forever and it's gonna leave her with more pain and he's got that thing of maybe I'm broken and I'm not actually going to be with the right guy for this one, this woman. And um, just in general, watching a lot of Clint's movies recently, I think he needs to, as a director, definitely be more represented in the film registry. I think he's one of uh, the best American directors of the last uh, Christ 50 years at this point. And uh, I think Bridges of Madison County would be a great uh, addition to the registry it's a it's a masterpiece in my opinion let's all go to the lobby 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 
thank you again to Ryan Louise Rodriguez for joining us. Next week, we're heading into the coal mines to tackle workers' rights and strikes. Documentarian Amy Nicholson joins us for 1976's Harlan County, USA. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.